seconds remaining. And look at this, a panic for Gowers if it sits. Taps it over to Allen as the siren goes down. The Hawks win. Number 16, Andy Gowers. Well, Hawks fans, every now and again we get a guest aboard the podcast and you should know by now that when that happens, it's generally a big deal. Of course, this man fits that bill exactly. We're talking about a premiership hawk. He served on the board as football director and more recently he was one of the key faces of the Hawks for Change campaign. Yes, this episode we bring to you our chat with Andy Gowers. Welcome to the Hawk Talk podcast. My name is Nick Mason and Tiz, this was your opportunity to chat with a uh, childhood hero. Yeah, well, he's a very obvious uh, man roaming the wings at Waverley Park, and uh, I just picked him as my favourite. Uh, kicking into the forward line, he seemed to be integral to the... And also, when he was dashing away um, with the ball as a young kid, I got excited. So it was only natural for him to become a favourite. Is it fair to say he's also the podcast's favourite number 16? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. We, we don't mention the most recent one who used to hold the number. We love the current one. But, of course, number 16, worn by Andy Gowers. As I said, Premiership Hawk, 1991. Uh, we, get, we get into that. Uh, Got to say, Tiz, incredibly generous with his time, Andy Gowers. Uh, we covered a lot. We did. We went back a long way, all the way up to tomorrow. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. We, Talked a lot about the future, feeling very optimistic about where Hawthorne's headed and, of course, discussed everything Hawks for change and stuff with Brisbane too. There's just a lot to get into and I feel like our listeners are really going to love this chat. So with that being said, without any further ado, let's get into our interview with Andy Gowers. Here he is, the great man joins us, Andy Gowers. His father played for the Tigers 24 games during the 60s. He came to Hawthorne, debuted in 1988, and his son Billy has, of course, represented the Dogs. You left Xavier, you won the uh, premiership there, then you come to Hawthorne and the place is just full of acolytes. Uh, they're brilliant players, some of them legends of the club already, and they're going through one of their greatest periods. How do you arrive at the club and make your presence felt? Because you were picked, I think, round seven over in Subiaco and Hawthorne are up by 45 points at quarter time and you must have been pinching yourself. <laughs> I was, Tiz, I absolutely was. Um, and it's lovely to be with you boys, uh, by the way. Thanks for having me on. Um, yes, look, absolute icons of the game uh, were littered through that that side. Um, in those days, pre-season started on the second Monday in January. So I walked to training with my bag over my shoulder. I lived on Barker's Road, Hawthorne. So although I had grown up as a Richmond supporter because of my my dad's career there, and I could have gone there under the father-son rule, I I actually was lucky because I had the choice to go to Hawthorne because they had put me on their senior list in my last year at school. So I had a choice between those two clubs. And... um, it was, I, I've often reflected on it and described it as a heart versus head kind of moment. And the heart was saying, surely you're going to play for the Tigers. And my head was saying, how could you not play for Hawthorne? <laughs> uh, and so that's, that's the way it transpired. And um, I made the decision to play with Hawthorne. And interestingly, Richmond at the time had said to my father, um, and Kevin Bartlett was the coach of Richmond at the time, and they had said that I'd, I'd be in the senior team from round one pretty much and be the, was earmarked for centre-half back. Whereas Yabby Jeans had said to my dad, and by the way, I was shielded for, from any of these discussions to supposedly focus on my studies, which had the reverse effect. I think I was <laughs> um, trying to listen in on every word I could because uh, I was very excited, obviously. Um, whereas, yeah, Yabby Jeans was saying to my dad that I would come through the under-19s and then if I showed enough promise, I'd then graduate to the seconds and then if I showed enough promise there, maybe a senior game. So that the, I guess the approaches of both clubs could not have been more different. And Hawthorne, so, yeah, this is 1987. Hawthorne had just played in the 83, 84, 85, 86 <laughs> and about to play in the 87 grand final. And I just thought, well, if I'm going to make it, I'd really like to make it at, at the best 
uh, club with the best team. I mean, Hawthorne were the best team, one of the best teams ever. So that really appealed to me and I really wanted to challenge myself. And um, yeah, I, I distinctly remember walking into the first night of training uh, into that side door at Glenferry Oval and people who, I mean, I, I'd, I'd never met them before, but I felt like I knew them when Dermot Brereton, Michael Tuck, Chris Langford, Gary Ayres, Andy Collins, Chris Mew, Chris Langford, Jason Dunstall, Johnny Platt and Gary Bacanara are coming up and, and putting their hand out and saying, hello, my name's Dermot Brereton. Hello, my name's Chris Langford. I, I nearly said every single time, you don't have to tell me who you are. <laughs> I know who you are. It's incredible, you know, the, the names and, and how was it at Subi to debut there? Because you had a very good game for a debutante, uh, 22 disposals, 19 kicks, and I noticed there's a hit out in there as well. <laughs> I, don't, I can't remember that bit. And you've done well to look up those records. Um, look, it was, I do remember that... Um, Alan Joyce, who had taken over temporarily from Alan Jeans that year, um, and remember that was the back-to-back -back deal, uh, he, I think he was fairly keen to get a bit of youth into the side. And um, I'd had a, a good pre-season, and although I hadn't uh, really knocked on the... Well, I didn't feel like I'd knocked on the, the senior door uh, enough during the first few rounds. I was playing some reasonable footy in the seconds, and in fact, I think from memory, uh, I was being played full forward. I'd come, uh, so at Xavier, I was uh, centre-half forward, although I'd played full back a bit too, but mainly, mainly centre-half forward. And uh, I was being played full forward in the reserves and I had a good game the week before, but I had no idea that I was up for senior selection. And in fact, it, it was quite interesting because I, I was expecting to play in the reserves. I had no inkling that I was going to be playing in the seniors that week and Alan Joyce um, I, I approached on I can't remember it might have been the Tuesday well in those days we only trained Monday Tuesday Thursday so it must have been the Tuesday night I approached him and said um, Alan um, you know we're playing so thinking I was going to be in the seconds Alan we're playing the Sydney Swans this weekend in Sydney my aunt and uncle live up there and I don't see much of them is it okay if I stay over after the game and spend a bit of time with them and come back the day after the game. And he just looked at me and he said, no, <laughs> <laughs> that's all he said. And I didn't go back. I didn't go back with a um, why not or you, know, you, you, you bugger or whatever. I just said, I just said, okay, thinking, oh, you know, I would have liked to have done that. And then of course I get picked and I only find out. So again, sign of the times. I mean, these days, you know, the media are covering when the, when the, um, the, the, the young players getting picked and when he's telling his parents and all that sort of stuff. So the way I found out I was getting my first senior game was my <clears throat> mother-in-law-to-be gave me the Australian newspaper on the Friday morning <laughs> and said, you might want to read that. That's incredible. <laughs> and that's how I found out. That's how I found out I was in the team. And then, of course, we had training that night because it was a Sunday game in Perth from memory. And we, we would have flown over on the Saturday. But so we had training in Melbourne on the Friday. And of course, Alan greets me when I get to Glenferry Oval. Alan Joyce greets me and says, now you know why I didn't want you to go to Sydney on, the, <laughs> on Saturday. But he wasn't going to give anything up earlier than that. That's no, incredible. He didn't let on. So it was, um, I think the, the feeling in those days was um, that to keep the, the surprise element. And, you know, and it certainly was a big surprise. And, very exciting, and I, I loved, I loved the whole thing. I, I just lapped it up, but I remember being so nervous, <clears throat> and I think um, the build-up of all those nerves and expectation and um, fear and all those, all those emotions were just weighing on my mind so much. Then we went out, we we, we had a really good win, and I and I played all right and felt like I. You know, maybe deserved another game. And you never know whether you're going to belong at that level until you start playing at that level. And then um, I'm on the plane on the way back. I think we came home that night and um, my stomach was absolutely churning. And it was, I think it was just a combination of all that mental, um, just the mental energy that, that I'd uh, expended in the lead up to the game. And maybe that's why they didn't tell me on the Tuesday it would have been worse. <laughs> 
So you arrive at the club at a time where, as we say, legendary success. And you might have been forgiven for thinking at some stage in that time, like, how long could this possibly last? Oh, no, it rolls right into 91. (laughs) You get a bit of a taste of it yourself after seeing all these guys have such success. You participate as well. The 1991 Premiership. Now, what, what are the memories that you typically return to when you think of that wonderful day? What are the images that first spring to mind? Well, I, I just want to point out, firstly, that that's Andy's 22nd game. Yes. Well, that, that is absolutely true. Um, I guess the first thing that I always go to is, for me, there was a lot of disappointment in missing out on 88 and 89. So 88, I felt like I had a spot in the side and then I dislocated my shoulder in the second last home and away round of the year. Um, and... It was interesting because Alan, Alan Joyce um, basically made me do the grand final parade on the Friday before that 88 grand final. And so it was, it was like a, uh, an extended squad did the, um, the ride in the old MG cars down the Burke Street Mall. And um, I really didn't want to do it. I just didn't feel it was right. I just d- didn't feel like it was the right thing for me to do. Uh, but he insisted. And he said, one day you'll thank me. And I did. I thanked him after the 91 grand final because by then it was water off a duck's back. I'd already done the parade and there were a lot of elements of that grand final week that were familiar to me because I'd been through them, albeit not as a selected player, but um, I was involved and on the, on the periphery. So 88 was very disappointing for me. And then 89 never really got going and had some other injuries and and Alan um, Jeans had returned by then as well um, and watched that, that grand final unfold. And don't, and well, as I was recounting before, the Hawks had just played in every grand final since 1983. So you sort of think, well, how long can this last? Am I going to get an opportunity to, to play in a flag? So when 91 rolls around, I, uh, I changed my mindset because I'd spent too much time looking back on what I'd missed out on rather than looking ahead at what influence I could have on the future and um, did some really good work with um, our club psychologist at the time, Anthony Stewart, who was just a legend. And um, he was, he was pivotal for me because of what I just said. He, he helped me focus on what I could do about the future, not look at what I'd missed out on the, in the past. And yeah, so, but in terms of um, the, the most fond memories or the images that come to mind, was just that determination to, to chalk up a, a premiership, having missed out on two. Well, I felt like I'd missed out on two. and um, But things like um, in the rooms, like the whole week was just a dream. You know, the whole week was amazing. I think we had, I mean, you guys probably know the figure, but uh, we certainly had over 10,000 people at Glenfrey Oval on the Thursday night before, um, before the, the grand final. And the, the, the atmosphere was amazing. And then, you know, the, the day itself, you know, the scenes in the rooms, the pre-match from Alan Joyce, uh, running down the race and Gary Ayres stopping the whole side as we're about to run onto the field in the race, stops everybody. And I won't use the exact words that he used, <laughs> but basically what he told us was West Coast Eagles are in our way. And it was, it was a bloody powerful, pardon my swearing, it was a bloody powerful moment and... Um, yeah, they were in our way, and that's it. You know, that's it's tribal. It's 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 like going to war. So, um, and running out on the ground, the game itself is a little bit of a blur. But there were moments, I suppose, that stick in your in your mind. Um, and then when the siren went, my my biggest recollection is just absolute elation. And the thing I go back to are the scenes in the rooms with, you know, everybody involved in the club. And family and friends that drift through and just the smiles on people's faces and those, um, those incredibly happy feelings. I've got tingles right now recounting it. It's, uh, it, it, it's amazing. It must have been enormously um, gratifying for you as well because I noticed of that 91 season, I think you, you managed to play just the six games. But when you got back into the side, you were on. Like you were charged to make this premiership side 
and, and experience all those experiences it was on. I mean, what was that like to, it's almost like a charmed run. You came into the side and just went for it. Yeah, well, the the attitude or the philosophy I had at the time was, um, and you're right, I'd hardly played any games uh, that year. I, I was playing good footy in the seconds and I just felt like an opportunity will will open itself up at some point. And as fate would have it, it opened up in the second last round of that year, which sort of I'm thinking, well, this fits in pretty well because I did my shoulder in the second last round in 1988. Maybe this is sort of meant to be. And I just thought <laughs> I, I'm going to take this opportunity no matter what. And um, so I played well enough to retain my spot. Now, what I didn't really factor in much at all at the time was we had um, a reasonably handy backup uh, on the wing with a guy by the name of Robert Dipier Domenico, <laughs> <laughs> who expected to get his wing position, his wing position back once he declared himself fully fit. Mm. Now, I actually, because he he says to me to this day, he said, you cost me a premiership, you know. <laughs> and I said, well, firstly, Dipper, with the greatest of respect, I didn't replace you. Uh, Chris Mew, actually, um, I think he either had a tight hamstring or a tight calf. So I actually didn't come in to play on the wing initially. I came in to play centre-half back and then did well enough to... Well, I felt I did well enough to retain a spot. But then it's a matter of, well, what position do you get played in? And most of that year in the seconds, I played on the wing. So Alan Joyce had said to me, uh, um, I think there might be a spot for you on the wing. Dipper didn't agree with this, obviously. <laughs> um, but, I, but I have subsequently said to Dipper... Mate, it's, it's a much uh, better story with you being a five-time premiership player and me being a premiership player than you being a six-time premiership <laughs> player and me, and me not. Well, it, it's, in, it's incredible for your size playing wing because Brereton is 186 centimetres and you're 191. Yes. So you, you're a very tall fella on the wing. I, I remember as a kid um, wearing the 16 and... And you were always very deliberate in your kicking style and, and never sort of gave up easy easy possessions uh, and always seemed to have space and it was great to watch you, especially in, in the later years um, before you ended up going to Brisbane. But um, how did you focus when you had the football? Was it the game plan was uh, Dunstall? Because you had Pritchard on the other wing as well and... Uh, did you just make sure each other had way too much space? Because it just looked like you just had acres every now and again. Well, often we were playing at Waverley and that uh, with the wings there were very big and that, that tended to suit me because um, I think as a, it's fair to say as a footballer, my biggest strength was um, my running. I was a, a middle distance runner. So my, uh, I don't know how I would have gone in this era because... We didn't have rotations. You got the opportunity to work your opponent over and typically you stayed on the same opponent all day. So, you know, in terms of the West Coast Eagles who were our opponents on grand final day, I would typically take Chris Mainwaring and Pritch would take um, uh, Matera, Peter Matera. So um, you had the opportunity to work an opponent over. Uh, now, sometimes your height worked for you if you could, if you could take a mark over a, maybe a smaller opponent. Um, but you had to be fast and you had to be able to run all day. So um, those, those elements were important. And, yeah, in terms of, I mean, we, we had a smorgasbord of options when it came to looking up the field if we did get the ball because we had, you know, Brereton, Paul Deere, who won the Norsemith medal, Dunstall. Uh, Paul Hudson, I think, from memory, kicked over 60 goals in that 91 season um, and was a prolific goal kicker. We had Darren Jarman down there uh, a, a, a lot as well in that 91 season before he established himself in the midfield. And Tony Hall, of course, was, was drifting through there also. So you looked up and you literally had six choices every time you got the ball. So taking care of the footy uh, wasn't all that tough a job when you had those six forwards and, and others, you know, rolling through there as your target. So and they, they tended to make your kicks look big. I, I remember one time in a, it was actually a practice game. I kicked the worst kick to Jason Dunstall on the lead. It was actually my very first <laughs> senior practice game. We we're playing against Essendon. No, it might have been Collingwood, Collingwood, out at Waverley. I was playing on the wing. And the ball hardly touched my foot. And it was wobble, <laughs> it was a floater going through the air. 
and he's running he, he's running towards it at pace with a fullback on his hammer and he somehow miraculously marked it on his chest and i remember thinking thank god he's on the other end because <laughs> i don't know that anybody else could have marked that kick it was so bad so that the, definitely the forwards um, made the uh, a lot of the uh, the kicks look a lot better than they were from my boot anyway. Now um, next year there's the uh, rescheduled Mighty Fighting Hawks reunion uh, that'll be celebrating uh, three premierships: the '61, '71, and of course the '91. How is it catching up with those familiar faces, the, these teammates with whom you, you shared that success? Oh, it's fantastic, Nick. Um, so I, I see a few of the guys that uh, live in, in Melbourne uh, now and then. Obviously not a lot in the last 20 months or so because of COVID and so on. In fact, that reunion was supposed to happen this year. And, and um, we, we were also going to have the day after that, um, that reunion, have a whole of club 1991 reunion. So not, not a premiership reunion per se, but a whole of club reunion. So... You know, bootstarter, doorman, um, secretaries, uh, marketing people, um, yes, players, but um, everybody through the club, coaches, runners, it, you name it. it. It takes you back, you know, it takes you back to that era and just the special times that we enjoyed together. And we, you know, we all worked very hard. And the other thing to remember is in 1991, uh, the people involved in the club who had formal roles were not that many versus the club now which has you know probably thousands of people involved to some degree in terms of volunteers and and staff and and so on and in multiple states as well so we we really they were small organizations the the old vfl was just becoming uh, the national competition was starting to roll out not all the sides that we have now were were in the competition at that point and the afl was really in its infancy and the clubs were starting to get more professional. I mean, I, I wouldn't describe a fully professional environment until the late 90s. So we're still seven, eight, eight years away from, from an AFL club being a, uh, you know, a fully professional environment. So you knew everybody really well, you know, and they knew you really well. So it was very much a, a great, albeit tight, community. It's a, it's a real watershed moment, that 91-92 season, um, missing out in the elimination final the following year. Uh, Tucky's asked to leave the club, and then eventually we see Andy Gowers and Ben Allen, two of our best midfielders, leave in 94. I'm not sure about how you came to leave, um, but we picked up pick eight and pick 60 from your trade which turned into uh, Daniel Harford and Brad Scott. <laughs> wow. Mm, I know. Well, it's, it's interesting looking back on those, uh, those trades and, um, you know, who the players were that eventuated from them. I remember meeting Daniel Harford's father at a function uh, years later, and, uh, and he reminded me that, that because of that trade, Daniel went to Hawthorne. So um, I think the, uh, the idea of the trading system is you might lose someone or something but you gain um other people and, and other things as a result so not you know hopefully it works out for both parties well you were a highly prized player because i just thought i'd have a quick look at other people who left around the same time and jarman left and, and we only got picked 25 <laughs> <laughs> well i'll take that comparison <laughs> <laughs> yeah no well it's probably just the, the vagaries of the uh, of the trading system and so on but um yeah, it was uh, you know in many many respects it was it was a very tough it was very tough for me personally because I I didn't want to go, um, but it seemed like it, it was just at the start you know I was saying before about the professionalism was starting to come in and I think clubs started to realise look to to get something you have to you have to give something so um, it unlike um, you remember when the Brisbane Bears started and clubs didn't give a lot to um, to the Brisbane Bears, they were forced to uh, give up some players, and I think most of the players that were technically given up were either already retired or on on one leg. <laughs> <laughs> um, this was a new era where clubs were trading and and looking to um, to give something to get something. And as far as I was concerned, um, once it became apparent that I was going to be traded, then I looked around at um, 
what would be best for me and my young family. At that stage, we had just, yeah, we just had our second child and um, we thought the, uh, the opportunity to go to a state where we didn't know anybody was quite exciting and that's what we ended up doing. It's a very brave decision to, to go to Brisbane. Brave or mad. <laughs> <laughs> New club and um, no real knowledge of what you're going into. Well, in some ways, yes, but Brisbane at that point had moved to the Gabba already. They were a membership-based club, not privately owned. They had already started a fairly aggressive recruiting campaign. So Alistair Lynch was already there. Craig Lambert from Richmond, he'd been uh, brought in. Uh, there was uh, Troy Lehman and um, Craig Starsevich from Collingwood had been brought in. There was, and, and look, to be fair, it wasn't. I wasn't aware of Michael Voss or, or uh, Jason Ackermanis at that point, but once I started training with them on night one, I became aware of what <laughs> amazingly skilled uh, players they were. But they, they had the nucleus of a really good side already there. Um, and this we're talking 1994 here. Um, so, yes, look, to some degree it was brave slash <laughs> uh, stupid. But I just felt like... And the other, well, the other thing about it that was exciting to me was it was a new frontier. AFL footy had been quite popular in southeast Queensland, you know, in the sort of right up through to the, the 70s. And then really rugby league, which was always the main sport through the winter months, along with rugby union, I suppose, um, began to dominate. And the Broncos were the biggest show in town because, well, News Limited um, owned them. And News Limited also owned the only paper in Brisbane, the Courier Mail. So <laughs> guess what? The Broncos got a lot of press. <laughs> And we didn't get much at all, but um, but we were we were the new frontier. So the opportunity to contribute in some way to the Brisbane Bears becoming a legitimately admired and respected uh, footy club, who'd never made the finals prior to um, that that year, or '95 was their first year they made a final. And then uh, you know you saw what happened in the early 2000s when they went on to win three flags after the merger with Fitzroy. So. But the bones of that side was already there pretty much. You know, Simon Black wasn't there, Luke Power wasn't there and a few others, but most of, um, a lot of them were already there. And you would have got a shock. You're, you're two years away from the club and, and all of a sudden merger talk at Hawthorne. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, um, an absolute shock. And, we, what, you know, we're talking five years prior, we, we'd won a flag, the flag I'd played in. Um, yeah, seems like um, way too short a time for the club to be in um, difficulty financially to even consider the concept of a merger. Um, but uh, it was it was always fairly clear that Hawthorne had a small membership base, and you know I, I sometimes liken the the um, the almost merger with the situation um, you know when we lost the grand final in 2012. And we'll never know the answer to this, but how many flags would we have won if we'd won in 2012? Yeah, I've, I've decided that's the most watchable losing grand final of all time. <laughs> I know, I know. And, and, and similarly, had we not had the, um, the turmoil of the almost merger with Melbourne, would we have, you know, had the, had the era that we've had subsequent to that not happening? We'll never know the answer to either question, but I think it's fairly clear that, no, it's not fairly clear. It's absolutely clear that the merger galvanised Hawthorne supporters who then became not just proud and passionate, but they became paid up. And that was the turnaround. So 11,000 members, I mean, even that, 11,000 members only in 1996 becomes 27,000 in 1997 and so on. When you think about how many people attended those grand finals... As well, you know, 11,000. What more do you people want? Sign <laughs> up. That's right. <laughs> right, exactly. It seems so obvious, but that, that was the situation then. I, I like to think that, you know, for all, for all that hardship, we, it does seem like we're in the best timeline. <laughs> I don't need to revisit the what-ifs because we've had it so good since. So how was it from that, from that very particular vantage point looking from Brisbane at Hawthorne? I mean... 
because it seems like now the present day you're such a Hawthorne person that is abundantly clear I mean what about back then that must have been a, a a peculiar and strange sort of feeling looking looking back on this club that was in a bit of turmoil that you I, I'm even guessing back then you still had affection for. Oh, absolutely, Nick. Yeah, my the weirdest game of football I've ever played in was my first game against Hawthorne, which happened to be round one in 1995. So my very first game in Brisbane Bears colours was against Hawthorne at Waverley, and um, I had uh, legitimate mixed emotions. I mean, I. I talked before about footy being a battle and being like a war. And um, so there I was fighting, but against uh, people who were some of my best mates. And so it was very emotional for me uh, that day. After the game, it was very emotional. Um, And I had um, a lovely thing happened actually after the game. So one of the trainers, uh, Joe Gearan, he and I used to have a bet. If I kicked a goal, I would get a point. So one or more goals was a point. So if I had a a goal scoring game, that was a point for me. If I didn't kick a goal in a game, that was a point for him. And we we had this rolling tally and I had won three years in a row, including 1994. I had more points than him because I kicked goals in more games than I didn't. And um, we, we kept on increasing the bet. And in the end, he said to me, he said, I've got this lovely bottle of um, port that uh, I'll give to you. This is when I was leaving Bruce. He said, I don't have it with me, but I'll give it to you one day, I promise. So I'm walking off the ground, tears streaming down my, my face, um, having caught up with a lot of old mates and we lost, we lost the game to the Hawks and I was just so emotional. And then Joe Gearan appears with this amazing bottle of port on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> and he gave it to me, he said, I told you I'd I'd be good for this bet, and um, and he, you know, subsequently uh, paid up, and that was a lovely moment. But yeah, it was very strange, and but watching the Hawks from afar, it it was it was strange. I mean, I, I put my heart and soul into the time I had at Brisbane, and I'm proud of um, you know my contribution there. Um, and then I guess when I moved back to Melbourne, I was doing some media work. I did some media work for different organisations, mainly radio, a little bit of TV, but mainly radio. And I watched the Hawks in Brisbane as a, as a bit of a media person. And, and in fact, it was uh, Ian Dicker, who was the one that, um, I guess, extended the, the hand of friendship to me. He came up to me. I was watching training one night at Glenferry Oval and he came up to me and he was president at the time. And he said... Um, you know, how are you going? And I'd done a pre-season when I came back from Brisbane under Peter Swap. Didn't get um, redrafted, but had a great few months training there. And, you know, I'm watching training and Ian Dicker said, you know, how are you going? How do you feel about the club? And I said, well, I feel it will always be in my heart, but I just feel, I feel mixed emotions. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, just, just in terms of the trade, the way that that eventuated, um, you know, and he, he said, do you mind telling me what happened? And I, t- I sort of told him the, the basic facts. And he said, uh, look, I'd really like to get you back into the fold at, at, in some way. Um, would you be open to that? And I said, absolutely, I'd love that. And he said, can you leave it with me for a few days? I'll come back to you. I want to have a think about it and I'll come back to you. And what he did was he invited me to the jumper presentation, which is... Yeah, I think most people would recognise that it's the most symbolically important function of the year where, you know, some players get their first jumper ever and they may only get one. And people like Tucky get their 20th or, <laughs> or 21st or whatever it was. Um, but it's, it's a really important night. And um, so I was thrilled to be invited and um, included. And it, honestly... From that moment on, I felt completely back in the fold and I've never felt anything different ever since. And of course, you were back in the fold in a big way um, during our most recent golden era, uh, serving on the board as it was football director, was it? Yes. At, at, uh, yeah, 2013, I believe you commenced. Now, how did that specifically come about? Well, Jason Dunstall was the previous football director and his time was about to expire, his nine-year or three terms were about to uh, reach their conclusion. And um, I had met Andrew Newbold, who was the president at the time, socially. We have some mutual friends. And they both approached me and, and well, Andrew Newbold initially approached me and said, would, would, you, um, would you consider 
joining the board and taking over from Jason Dunstall. And I, I was open to it. And then he said, look, if that's the case, then, um, you know, I'll get Jason to give you a call. You two should catch up. He can describe what's involved. And, and then when, when that happened, um, Jason said, look, the, probably the best thing to do is pretty much shadow me for a few months, um, which I did. And then, um, yeah, it all transpired when he, when he stepped away, I, I took over. So that was, yeah, I think officially, um, officially joined in early 2014, but I'd been, you know, within the four walls throughout, um, I guess, probably half of that 2013 season. So it was a great way to do it because I'd had the experience of seeing the way the footy subcommittee worked, the board worked and spent enough time with Jason to understand it and, and enough time to meet all the, all the key people that I'd be dealing with, which was important too. So I wasn't walking in um, not knowing those people. What, what's the pressure like in a role like that? Well, you've got, it's, it's not pressure. I didn't feel any pressure as an individual. I mean, it's, it's the club itself, I suppose, is the one that's constantly under pressure. And you, you've got one, uh, one role and you're, you're, I guess, one cog in the wheel. Um, but look, the, <laughs> the role that I inherited was um, a dream role in many respects because, A, the board had done such a great job. Uh, the the um, football director role had been performed brilliantly by Jason. And um, he was very happy to hand me the baton and make sure that, you know, it was my role to run with once he'd, he'd stepped away. So, and look, let's face it, if you look at the playing list, it was a, it was a magnificent, uh, magnificent <laughs> list. That, that's not to say there weren't moments where there was pressure because there, there were many times where, we faced a lot of adversity. Well, when finals came around and, and Hodgie's drink driving, you would have been involved with those discussions, I imagine. And Yeah, and, um, you know, um, Brett Ratton's son died in a car accident just before the 2015 final series. Um, we had we had Clarko with Guillain-Barre syndrome who um, missed part of the 2014 season. So there weren't... Um, it wasn't all smooth sailing. No football club ever has smooth sailing through the entirety of a year or a season. So every club faces adversity to some degree, injuries, suspensions, all things that a lot of things that you could never predict. And that you just have to roll with the punches and, and make decisions as best you can um, when, when, when the facts come to light um, for the, for the best interests of the club or, or the best interests of the team. So um, I think if you stick to those principles, like, I mean, the, the um, Brendan Bolton appointment when Alistair Clarkson was, um, was crook was a good example because um, we, we had some, you know, fantastic senior assistant coaches and, and a great uh, assistant coaching team. But it just seemed uh, clear. And I'm sure, I'm sure some of the, uh, the assistants um, would have loved to have taken the reins over for, for however long it was going to be, but the decision was made that, that Bolts would be the best place to do it. And once that decision was made, everybody got behind him and you saw the result. We had, he was in charge for five games. I mean, the other thing about that was nobody knew how long it would be. You know, we, we, we were not to know how long Alistair was going to be unwell for. And there were different scenarios that could have played out. Anyway, as it turned out, he was, uh, he was away for five weeks or five rounds. We, we play those five rounds. Brendan's the, uh, you know, the, the coach and uh, we win five out of five. So that was, that was a great result. Um, but I think the whole organisation just, I used that term before, galvanised, rallied and everybody was in sync. Now, you, you might have answered this inadvertently, but I, I have always wondered about uh, morale in such an organisation because when we think about morale, it's so often in the context of the playing group and the guys that we see out in the field. I just wonder, in that back-to-back-to-back era, to what extent does morale filter through the entire club? It, it does seem like it's a thing that happens. A hundred percent it does. And, yeah, I, I haven't worked um, in a paid role in an AFL footy club. Obviously, my, my well, as a player I was, but in terms of the administration and the, uh, the executive and so on. But... Um, Everybody's moving in the right direction. And, and I think it's really important to get uh, everybody in that position, both 
physically and mentally uh, to get the best out of out of the organisation, both on field and off. And um, yeah, there's no doubt morale is a huge thing. It's a huge thing. And, you know, if you'd gone, and I didn't go to this function, but if you'd gone to the 2012, you know, grand final function, that morale would have been very low that night. But you draw on those moments when your morale is tested and when your when your faith is tested because it it makes you better for next time. And um, I, I heard a great quote from um, Chris Fagan, our old uh, footy manager and, and assistant coach, this year during the finals coaching Brisbane. And he was asked, you know, are you, are you worried about the... It wasn't morale, it was a confidence, but same kind of comp- concept. Are you worried about the uh, confidence of your young players if you lose this weekend? And he said, no, we either win or we grow. Well, no, it might be we win or we learn. That's what it was. We either win or we learn. And I thought, what a great, what a great uh, response, number one. But that's that's the way you have you have to think about it. Yes, you'll have you'll have times where where morale is is not as high as other times, um, and you do draw on those to uh, to get you over the line, both on and off the field. Um, in other times. Uh, it just reminds me, I think it was 2013, trying to claw our way back to the top to be in a position to win it all. It might have been 2013 where Alistair Clarkson had uh, an empty trophy case. It's simply with the caption, you decide, which I think is, uh, well, clearly it worked, whatever year it was. I think I'm remembering correctly, but uh, making the best of it. And being inspired to learn and grow uh, seems fundamental to a footy club. Absolutely. It really is. Look, you may be right about the 2013. That's not my recollection. But what I do remember is in 2015, we had three um, trophy cabinets in the in the room and two of them had the 2013 and 2014. And there was, there was one that didn't have a cup in it, which is the 2015. It was earmarked for that, so that might that might be the story you're referring to. And it, it, that might have been the one. I, I mean, that's Clarko, isn't it? All sorts of tricks up his sleeve. He always had a story to hype him up, and yeah, he, he was a man of many talents. Well, that also has to be the shortest uh, post-match speech ever given by a coach to his players, because it was two words. You beauty. <laughs> <laughs> so Brett, yeah, Brett Ratton and um, and Hodgie put the cup into the previously empty trophy holder, closed the cabinet. There were three cups staring at the, uh, at the all the people in the room, and then Clarko just got some shush, and then he just said, "You beauty," and then they started singing horses. <laughs> <laughs> So that was a very special moment. Yeah, we've had some real morale shifts, both societal and at the club, in the last year. And you've come out with a number of people have come out and said it's time to make some decisions about what we want to be from here on. And we've had the, um, what is it, 20 by 50 and things like that put up in the past. So we've, we've had a look to the future, but it seems now is a good time when... Um, we've been in such a state of flux as a club to really pick the issues we want to change and and rebuild from here. And you've put your hand up, or or you did, and Hawks for Change came along and and it's forced some movement at the top at Hawthorne, which has been fantastic. Um, I'm disappointed you retracted your hand. I would have liked to put the vote down for Andy Gowers. But... um, but you'll be on the nomination committee going forward for the role of president. That's correct, isn't it? Yeah, I expect to be on that nominations committee, yes. I suppose some supporters might be wondering why now in particular? I mean, in your mind, was there a specific tipping point that really inspired some urgency to take action? Good question. I've just been watching, I guess, uh, as a member, as a supporter, and uh, yeah, having I left the board in 2017, so only four years ago, um, and I actually read an article that uh, my old teammate Jimmy Morrissey wrote in The Age, I think it was. It's a number of weeks ago now. Anyway, and I just thought it was, it was good of him to, to pop his head up and, um, and do that. And I thought to myself, look, I've been involved. I, I want what's best for the club. 
maybe I can help. And um, as you said before, Tiz, I did stick my hand up and I was prepared to do whatever was required, whether it was a board role, a formal board role again, so returning to the board or, or not. I, I was always open to what it looked like, but I thought to, to get some, the conversation going, I think it's best if I do, because I, I considered it for quite a while, but I thought that the best thing to do is to nominate. And then I, I've been in very uh, cordial discussions with um, the club about what the club needs, where the club you know, can go, and how I can help, how I can play a role. And I've always said the whole way through, if there's someone better placed than me to play a particular role, I will gladly step aside. Um, and so in the context of that, I did decide to step aside. But I, but I, look, professionally, I've done succession planning for over 15 years. It's something that I've specialised in and I love. So that was one of the things that I've said to Jeff and the rest of the board and the club, I can actually help. Uh, Jeff's succession and succession in general within the club, the, the overall concept of succession. Especially after that last one they had. Is that... Yeah, we could have used you a bit <laughs> earlier, actually. <I> <laughs> well, look, succession is not an easy thing. It's always emotional. It's tricky. It's always tricky. It's sensitive. It's tricky. It's um... One of the strangest feelings I've ever felt was watching that press conference with Clarko and Mitchell both in attendance. That was very eerie for me, just watching that. Yeah. Well, look, it's, um, as I said, it, it, they're not easy. And um, the other thing that I think needs to be kept in mind when it comes to succession is there are always people and, and people have feelings that um, may not be 100% happy with the succession plan. Now, it's very hard to have a succession plan where everybody is absolutely over the moon about it. <laughs> because it typically means somebody or more than somebody is moving aside yeah, to, yeah. to some degree. So that is always um, yeah, loaded with emotion and, and so on. So it's a, it's a bit of identity too, isn't it, in the, in the roles? And... It's identity, yeah. It's, it's a delicate balance. And look, but, but the thing I always go back to is what is best for the, so in this case, it's Hawthorne, what is best for the club? Yeah. And if you keep that in the forefront of your thinking and your decision-making, yes, there will still be people who are not completely over the moon about every element of it, but it'll, it'll end up being, you know, eventually in the best uh, interest of the club. Now, you, you mentioned before about Tucky uh, being retired after the 91 flag. That's an example. Now, Tucky wasn't happy about it and felt at the age of 38 he had another, another year in him, and maybe he did. But the decision was made, not by Tucky, um, but the decision was made um, that the best thing for the club was, was for him to retire, and, and that's what eventuated. Now, um, that's, that's an example. I mean, it happens every year in footy clubs. You just don't hear about it all the time. It mightn't be the coach or the president or the CEO or the footy manager, it might be someone that you might, might not know about who's moved on for various reasons. Um, so, yeah, we, we've, had, we've, had a, we've had a public one with Alistair Clarkson and, uh, and Sammy Mitchell taking over. Speaking of that failed succession plan, um, I, I want to link that back to Hawks for Change. I mean, that's a movement that has engendered a great deal of support. Uh, I wonder where that support is coming from. Would it be too simplistic to say that that failure was the last straw for some people? Or, or can we expand it and think of it in terms of, well, people have their other reasons? Um, well, what's your sense on that, do you reckon? Look, the first thing I'd say is I wouldn't necessarily describe it as a failed succession plan. <laughs> uh, I think it, it's a succession plan that didn't turn out the way that a lot of people envisaged. <laughs> this is so political. <laughs> Well, it, it is in many ways. I mean, it's, um, as I said before, it's bloody, they're bloody hard. Um, now, so there's that, there's that element to it. And I guess, I think, you know, the Hawk, from what I understand, from the, the Hawks for change have been keen to drive change um, within the club. And I've, uh, I guess, had that link through, through Jimmy Morrissey. And um, they became aware that, um, you know, I've, I've feeling passionate about the club and I want to help. And so that became a bit of a, um, 
an option for Hawks for Change to support me, which they made very clear that they would support me. So that, and I've said this before, but that gave me gave me enormous confidence to put my hand up and to to try and be a bit of an agent for change. Um, not not in an uh, in an agitated way or a, an adversarial way. It's been very much in a collegiate, and as I said before, cordial uh, manner. Uh, there hasn't been one raised voice. It's been very open and collaborative. And you've got to accept the past and move on too, for um, for Sammy Mitchell's sake, predominantly. It, it, absolutely right, Tiz. I mean, Sam and the football department, the whole club, but but in particular, Sam. New, a new senior coach uh, needs clear air to, you know, coach the side the way that he sees fit, along with the, the coaching, um, yeah, the assistant coaches and, and the whole uh, football department. So that's the least we can do. This is not so much a question. It's just something that has struck me attending the Hawks for Change rallies before and, and throughout this interview. Um, it just strikes me that I, I don't sense an agenda within you, Andy. What, what I sense is your love for this club is just off the charts. You, you want to give back and you want to do what you can to put this club in the best position and whatever that might be, whatever role that might represent, is you're open to it. I just think it's... Um, I suppose I'm paying you a compliment. No, it's not so much a question, just a compliment. I think it's remarkable. It's great. Thank you, Nick. Thank you very much. Well, look, if I go back to the succession plan um, concept of what's in the best interests of a club. I mean, the club relies on volunteers. That's also something that um, is important to say, that every single member of the board is an unpaid volunteer. They get paid zero. So you, um, you take your passion for the club and then some particular expertise that you may or may not have. And in, in my case, it's, a, I guess, a combination of football and, and, and business expertise and, and experience. Um, and I, I said this from day one in terms of most recent discussions, I will do whatever needs to be done. We, we probably need more people to put their hand up. And I've also said to uh, Tim Shearer, and I'd love to think that both um, Ian Silk and also Jennifer Holdstock, if they're not elected for whatever reasons, that they're still prepared to help the club and put their hand up. So um, that that makes a stronger club. If you have more people willing to put their hand up and contribute, then that, that helps make a more robust and successful club. Do you think that that kind of devotion um, will be harder when they move to Dingley? Because I have, I have real... I mean, we've, we've moved more than any other club with our home base. No, I actually think it would be easier because I think, I think the Kennedy Community Centre is the most exciting sporting, I guess, headquarters and, and community... Uh, concept in the country I really do and I think I think one of the things and I think um, the club is uh, aware of this well I know they're aware of it is we the club we need to do a better job of communicating that to our members and supporters and the broader community because I think I think it is so exciting we'll we'll become a hub for elite yes elite performance but also uh, a community hub for for the you know, I guess that that whole area of Dingley, which um, I think I think Jeff Kennett famously said should be renamed Rioli because it might help the house prices improve. <laughs> <laughs> it's the strangest thing, and I think I attribute this maybe to the on-field results not being uh, all that flash lately. But there's a sense that Hawthorne is a bit of a dark horse in terms of our direction off-field. We're on the cusp of a, a very um, potentially prosperous era and one marked by this state-of-the-art facility and our AFLW team will be in soon. And uh, I think there's a lot of reasons to be excited. Oh, I couldn't agree more, Nick. And, you know, if you look uh, and to your question before, Tiz, about the uh, Hawthorne moving uh, maybe more often than, than some other clubs, I mean, look at the success we've had since we moved to Waverley. So we went to a more... I guess, professional setup. I mean, Glenferry Oval had so much history and still does. It, it's got such a, a keen place in my heart and many Hawthorne supporters' hearts. I'd love to see something done with that. Uh, look, so would I. I think that would be great. Um, but the move to Waverley was the next step, I reckon. And then 
we look like doing it again. There's going to have to be some pushback from AFL House. We can't be this <laughs> successful again, Andy. What, they already they already put the fixture against us. Um, what else? Are they, oh, the AFLW side, not for a long time. They want Tassie for the Kangas. What what else have they got up their sleeve? Well, you, you just yeah, you just got to roll with the punches, as I said before, <laughs> and and then. Um, Come back bigger, better and stronger. But look, we're ultimately the masters of our own destiny. And that is that is a reflection on what happened post the non-merger. To be able to have that financial stability and to be to be the masters of our own destiny, despite sometimes with our backs against the wall. And there are plenty of, uh, you know, I mentioned a few before, but there are plenty of examples where we have faced a lot of adversity and we've, we've come out Trump. So... I, I have a lot of faith in in the in the club being able to, you know, um, make the right decisions, do the things that it needs to do to be as prosperous and as successful and as community contributing, um, and and become a beacon for not only other sporting clubs but other organisations. I reckon that would be a fantastic goal. Now, voting is open to members right up to December 12, and they can choose from three candidates we've covered already. Uh, You're one of at least 50 prominent Hawthorne people uh, backing Ian Silk. So I guess the question is, uh, why Ian in particular? I have come to know Ian. I didn't know Ian until um, recent times, a few months ago. And having got to know Ian um, recently, I've... I understand that he's a, a great Hawthorne person. He's been involved before in a formal role, so sitting on that, that finance and governance committee during, I believe, Ian Dicker's last term and Jeff Kennett's original first term. So he has a, a good understanding of the, the governance side and the finance side. I guess the other, the other part that I think um, makes it a, a good decision to back Ian Silk is... He has been CEO of, of the biggest super fund in Australia, which now I don't know the exact figure, but, but they manage over $200 billion of members' funds. So it's a huge business. And he's, he's had an extremely successful career um, in later times um, being CEO there. So, you know, business credibility, amazing Hawthorne person. It's in his blood. He told a great story. Uh, that I heard on one of those Hawks for Change rallies where he was told by his father that he could he could barrack for anybody that he liked. This is at the age of about six. Uh, but if he wanted to sleep in the same house, it had to be Hawthorne. <laughs> <laughs> so it was sort of forced upon him initially, but I know he attends the footy regularly with his family. And, yeah, so I, I've had enough discussions and heard enough and seen enough uh, for my own opinion that. Um, that Ian, Ian would be a, a very worthy director, not just worthy, he'd be, he'd be a fantastic director of the club. I think it's only fitting, you know, given that, given that childhood story that um, in one of those rallies, the, the bit that really, uh, you know, struck a chord with me was talking so much about family values. He, he seemed very big on underlining the importance of Hawthorne um, embracing more wholeheartedly that aspect of being the family club. That was something I took away. I don't know how you feel about that, Andy. I mean, I'm assuming you felt similarly passionate about that. Yep, absolutely I do. I think it, it's a fantastic um, association. I think I think even non-Hawthorne supporters uh, are envious of the fact that we, we, we pretty much own the family club, uh, that association. And, and it's a great association to have. You know, what's more precious than family? And, you know, Hawthorne, the Hawthorne Football Club is a family in its own right. So um, it's it's a very special place. And, um, yeah, I, I, I resonated with that too. I'm interested to get your take on this. What have you made of um, Tim Shearer's recent comments? I don't know if you've been in step with those and kept in the loop regarding the club's list and then the idea of Jeff Kennett being allowed to exit his role with dignity, very, being very pointed about that. Um, what did you make of those comments, if you're familiar with them? Well, just on Jeff exiting with dignity, I completely concur. And uh, I've been saying that for, for weeks. I think 
the best thing for the Hawthorne Football Club is to give every person a dignified exit and um, protect their legacies. So I completely concur with that. And in terms of uh, his comments about the list, well, I know that he's been, um, I, this is Tim we're talking about. Tim has been uh, doing some work alongside Richie Vandenberg and, and helping out with the, the footy side of things. Uh, but I also know that his main um, expertise and skill set is, you know, the fundraising and the foundation side of things, with particular emphasis on the Kennedy Community Centre. So, um, yeah, so I, I heard those comments. Look, I don't, I don't really have an opinion either way, but um, I, I know Tim is very passionate about, about footy. Uh, and he, he's, um, everyone's entitled to their opinion, I suppose. But, yeah, I think I, I heard them, um, I think it was on SEN the other day. I did hear them. Yeah, yeah, he, he agreed with Kane Corns. But I, I feel like Tim might have changed his mind after the last week, picking basically all midfielders in the draft. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe, yeah, maybe. But no, it was um, the draft was very exciting, and it's been a while since we've had um, a pick that high yeah. in, in the top ten. And um, but yeah, I think all the all the draftees uh, sound very exciting to me, and I, I can't wait to see them. Well, I've seen them in our colours, but I can't wait to see them running around, kicking a footy in our colours. What do you look for in a draftee, Andy? What, what what's the thing that they have to have? I think the first thing is character. I think, um, and Hawthorne has a, uh, a very good record at, at drafting. Well, they're typically um, young people, men and women now, who, um, who have character. And that, that's borne out in times of, uh, of pressure on and off the field. You know, when, when you, are, um, you're, you are battling a certain situation or, or what have you. So I think that's really important. Obviously, skill comes into it. But I actually think ability... I think it's the most overused word in football. I, I hear it um, in the commentary all the time. Oh, he's got the ability or she's got the ability. Well, the ability is probably responsible for about 15% of the performance. 85% of it's up here in, in the noodle. So that's why I mean about character. Someone who's prepared to work hard, um, play for their team, be, be selfless, and to demonstrate a team-first attitude and a club-first attitude. I think they're the most important things, and they've all got ability. Every single draftee, even even many of the um, the draftees that miss out on being picked up, they're all very talented. But I think it's those other aspects, the mental side, the, um, the selflessness, club first, team first. They're the most important aspects. I think it's time to thank Andy for his devotion to Hawthorne. It's uh, and, and by extension, Ian Dicker for bringing him back into the fold. Oh, look, it's been lovely to join you, you boys. You're, you've done your research, that's for sure. You bring back some, uh, bring back some memories there, particularly from uh, the old days that were are very fond. And I had, I had to delve into the deepest recesses of my, uh, my long-term memory to, <laughs> to, to recall some of those stories. But um, no, it's been a pleasure to join you, and um, well done on the podcast. It's, it's a great listen. Thanks so much, Andy, and uh, yeah, really appreciative of you. Um sharing so much our listeners have been delighted with the chat so uh thanks again pleasure thanks guys well there you have it listeners our sprawling interview with andy gowers we covered a hell of a lot i, I hope everyone enjoyed it tears i feel like you did certainly yeah yeah i might be um it might be a little bit tiny now but i'd probably be sleeping in my jumper tonight <laughs> Of course, of course. A fanboy to the end. Uh, no, that, that was immensely enjoyable. No, it was great. The, the, the love that came through the Zoom that Andy feels for the club and, and the way he's put that into a devotion to the club is, is amazing and, and something to... Um, and the way that he inspires others to devote themselves to the club in sometimes uh, roles that aren't well rewarded. I had a blast that interview. That was incredibly enjoyable. And we thank Andy for his time. Uh, before we wrap up, 
just the obligatory social media stuff I think we need to get to. Now, if you enjoyed this special edition of the Hawk Talk podcast, our chat with Andy Gowers, why not rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts? That really helps spread the word to other Hawthorne supporters to get on board our show. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter, another milestone in the making over there. So log on to Twitter at Hawk Talk Pod and join our community. You can also join our Facebook family. Find us at facebook.com slash hawktalkpod. You can find us on Instagram. We have some merch on Redbubble, some new designs coming soon, so look out for that just in time for Christmas, Tiz. Absolutely. Get them early for Christmas. Um, what, what do you have to order them by? Is it tomorrow for Australia Post to get them to you by Christmas? I think it is. I think it's two weeks ago for <laughs> Australia Post. <laughs> I don't know what the state of those guys are. But anyway, uh, look, if you love what we do, and the time and effort that we invest into the podcast, you can head to Patreon and sling us a bit of coin and support the show. You can subscribe at any tier you like. Most people like the level that that provides the bonus content. Uh, All the details are right there on Patreon, so visit patreon.com slash hawktalkpod. I hope everyone enjoyed that. As I said, we, we had a blast, so we get some bloody good guests on this show, don't we? It's usually just us two rambling on, but when we get a guest... Boy, do we get a guest. <laughs> That'll be it for another episode of the Hawk Talk podcast. We've still got a couple of episodes in us before the end of the year. We've got AGM stuff to cover, the fixtures coming out soon. We've got our season recap as well, which I've already started work on. Didn't know that, did you, Tiz? Nope, shaking his head. That's all right. I'll have to go to my notepad, see if I can read my scroll from the end of every round. Yeah, can you transcribe <laughs> that one? Don't send the screenshots through. i tell you what, Siri can't read it. No hope. <laughs> Well, until then, I look forward to it. Uh, We are a happy team at Hawthorne.